When those who have the power to name and to socially construct reality choose not to see you or hear you, when someone with the authority of a teacher, say, describes the world and you are not in it, there's a moment of psychic disequilibrium, as if you looked in the mirror and saw nothing. It takes some strength of soul, and not just individual strength, but collective understanding, to resist this void, this non-being, into which you are thrust, and to stand up demanding to be seen and heard. This a quote by the famous Adrian Rich, poet, essayist, author, called forward by one of my guests, Carissa Duran. Carissa is a teacher and instructional coach for literacy, language development, and educational technology at Del Lago Academy in California. She's committed to educational justice and uses innovative pedagogy and assessment practices to improve the engagement, empowerment, and success of historically marginalized students. My congrats to Carissa, recently named Teacher of the Year by the Aurora Institute. She's joined by my second guest, Alec Barron, the founding principal investigator for Competency X, a curriculum and professional learning specialist in the Escondido, California Union High School District. Competency X began as an assessment practice for workforce-informed performance tasks that was developed to broaden access to college and career opportunities. The X is how learners choose to curate evidence of their learning and reflect on how it represents success with competencies. Developed at Del Lago, Competency X was designed to help students access the life science workforce. Currently, the project is using a phase two award with funding by the Bill and Melinda Gates and Hewlett Foundations to pilot a competency-based articulation approach to broaden access to college credit and paid internships for high school students. Our conversation here takes place at the National Summit for Excel in Ed. From their website, launched by former Florida Governor Jeb Bush in 2008, the Foundation for Excellence in Education supports state leaders in transforming education to unlock opportunity and lifelong success for each and every child. I was grateful to join my colleagues from NAF, known widely as the National Academy Foundation, in hosting a roundtable discussion at the conference aimed at illuminating new practices and credentialing. In this case, one that is local to where we gathered in San Diego, California. My guests, Alec and Carissa, represent Del Lago Academy, only 30 minutes north of where we sat together in a windowless ballroom, only 100 yards or so from the harbor. My first episode with Alec, number 28, was titled, If Grades Were Hyperlinks, and is one of the most downloaded episodes of this show. When I found out that we'd be in San Diego to discuss credentialing, I had to reach out and see if we could get an update to hear more than a year after the initial episode how Del Lago is faring with the project, which even in the most forward-thinking school district would be a scuffle to reframe the purpose and tactics with which we recognize learners' acquisition of skills. There's lots of ambient noise in this episode from the hundreds of lawmakers from all over the U.S. gathered to talk about the state of education in this country. It's a nice backdrop for the conversation, metaphorical in the sense that amid what can feel like a constant din around fixing what ails us in education policy, when we listen carefully, we can hear the voices of people like Carissa and Alec influenced in their choices every day by actual lives of the young people we all aim to serve. These voices are the ones that, after the event is packed up, deserve a second listen. Help us change the way we empower young learners. Help us improve the relationships that nurture learners from one stepping stone to the next. Help us re-envision ways of assessing skills such that we improve the agency of young scholars, making credentials more meaningful as currency, and bringing the tools of recognizing learners out of the grainy lo-fi of the past and into the present day, their voices say. My thanks, Excellence in Education, for hosting this conversation at their national summit, and to a great audience who pipe in with a few great questions toward the end of the conversation. I hope you'll listen with as much excitement as I did. This is No Such Thing, 
a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. Um, I wanted to start with you, Alec, just to set the groundwork and talk a little bit about Competency X and and tell us about the origin story. The, The place where I'm really interested to get to quickly is... This conference has focused a lot in what conversation there's been about credentials. The first principle or the the kind of axiom that they're building credentialing and that conversation around is is sort of historically the one we all know, right, is about uh, sort of organizing body at the top, creating a credential that's representative and and workforce very much at sort of the center of the conversation. I think with Competency X, there was a different first principle, which I, in my um, estimation, seems more about personalized learning and a little bit more about assessment and, and practices that get us um, to equity. So tell us about the origin story for Competency X and where am I right about that and where am I wrong about that? Tell us, tell us how these things sort of came together. So yeah, uh, Competency X began at uh, Del Lago Academy. It's a school that opened in 2013. We're a public school within Escondido Union High School District, which is about 38 minutes northeast of here. So uh, our school was founded with a school to work vision where we really wanted our students to be scientists and connect to the biotechnology industry that is a hub within the San Diego community. So for us, uh, we designed the school so that all of our juniors, our 11th graders, would embark upon a six-week internship and where they would get to learn not just about a particularly in- particular inter- industry sector, but learn about themselves within that rich situational learning experience. So one of the things that we became quickly aware of is that there were really interesting tasks that they weren't going to embark upon within these internships that weren't reflected within our curriculum. And also, uh, my work with um, Alyssa Wallace, who was another teacher working with me, this was a teacher-generated project, and we really noticed that the thing that our internship partners wanted the most was not what was reflected necessarily in our standards. It was about those dispositions and ways of thinking and ways of problem solving, also seeking the problems themselves. Uh, And that in the laboratory space, we didn't have a model to capture evidence of when a scholar, which is what we call our students because we believe in their active approach to learning, um, has what we call nerdy delight. (laughs) So nerdy delight is a way that we frame um, that moment when you've reached success and you didn't think you were going to be successful. And this happens not in the classroom space, it happens in the laboratory space at Del Lago more than anything else because you can think of school-based learning in terms of knowledge. We cared a lot about practices, about being a scientist and being a biotechnologist. So we had those moments of nerdy delight that were happening within our school and that was happening where scholars were micropipetting and when you use a tool like a micropipette, you think that it's a very simple tool, but it's actually fairly complex in terms of how you have to consider your context, how you're feeling, your hand position, but also the why behind you using that particular technique. And that's not something that can be captured in a paper and pencil test. So we wanted a way for our scholars to capture the story of them reaching nerdy delight, essentially telling the story of how they reach success with evidence from that success, those moments of success that happen in that laboratory space. So for us, that's where the term competency X came from. X is how the learner captures evidence and how they select evidence to reflect their success on a competency, which if we wanted to standardize our definition of what a competency means, we're talking about an explicit, measurable, transferable learning objective. So with that, um, we our idea was really in that that student centered focus of them telling their own story and that narrative of success through captured evidence in a portfolio. That's how it began. That was the origin. It obviously moved further from there. So I don't know if you want me to keep going on that. <laughs> so that's a perfect a perfect segue, um, Carissa. To tell us that's kind of where it began. Tell us where it is now. 
what's happening at Del Lago, what does this thing look like, um, both at the level of, uh, we'll slowly zoom out and I want to talk about partners and all of the stuff that's important to making this thing tick, but um, give us a sense of what's happening at Del Lago now. Like it's November of the school year, what are students experiencing and how does the project of Competency X intersect or not with their experience? Sure, thank you. Um, I'll start with what happened on Monday. And on Monday, our uh, humanities team uh, met with um, some folks from the Center for Collaborative Education who, who worked with us from the beginning on, um, on Competency X, and we came to an agreement about rethinking assessment in a way that would really support this work um, in a more systematic way, not just in, a, in that single science classroom or in the science department, but across our whole school and ideally eventually scaled up to our whole school district. So that's, that's what happened on Monday is we made that, that commitment. Um, and that all stemmed from Competency X uh, because Competency X, like Alec mentioned, it started in a science classroom, um, but really quickly we recognized the value of applying it outside of those science and engineering practices and outside of those laboratory skills. Um, and we came to the point where uh, when I was uh, helping manage our internship program, we actually used the Competency X principles um, and digital badging to engage scholars in building, co-creating digital badges with their internship mentors during that six-week internship period. Um, and so it spread that direction. Um, it further influenced our school um, because Competency X is, is a digital badging program, but also an e-portfolio program. Um, and so that idea of e-portfolio assessments and scholars being able to um, define their own, their own learning and their own definition of success um, building a body of evidence, uh, demonstrating mastery in a way that makes sense to them um, has taken root across our campus. So our principles of design teachers, instead of um, traditional assessments, they now collect a body of evidence over the course of the entire semester and their scholars have a conference with their teacher at the end of the semester. They do a portfolio defense. Uh, so it's moved from the science classroom and laboratory space to art and internships and our internship programs move across San Diego County where we have scholars engaged in internships like Alec mentioned every single spring in industries that are in the biotechnology space but also um, at the Discovery Museum and at the Center for the Arts and and so it's really kind of allowed our staff and our scholars to rethink what assessment looks like um, and rethink the way that we validate the learning that scholars have um, both inside and outside of the classroom because learning happens anytime, any place. It doesn't just happen you know, on a Friday sit-down exam. And so Competency X has really opened our minds and our, and our um, capacity to pursue those alternative assessment experiences for our scholars. Mm. So there's like... 70 different things we you just mentioned that I, I, I want to unpack because they're all really kind of important to and a whole ecosystem of change that's that's being attempted through this project, right? So we talked about uh, portfolio-based assessment, which is huge. We talked about... Um, uh, the sort of practices that go into that. So how are educators, what's the pedagogy that's sort of built into that? You talked about this interesting relationship between mentors and students where together they're sort of building a, a kind of credentialing practice built on competencies that they're going to they're gonna measure together and figure out uh, how to create value for moving forward. This is a lot of stuff. Any one of these would be a huge project. Um, there's a also a lot of tech that we're talking about. So we're talking about digital badging. We're talking about portfolio systems. None of this is a, a sort of, uh, there's certainly no silver bullet or quick fix to any of this stuff. Um, Chris, I want to ask you, because you are not, um, so you're not a science teacher. Um, and you're somebody who's coming at this project from the, a role um, in uh, English and reading, I think, right? right? Um, so 
I'm curious about your perspective because you're the one who's talking to other teachers about, you know, we have this crazy idea. It's going to mean something for your assessment practice. And here's how that's going to pan out. Like, how does that storytelling work for you? And what are what are educators in classrooms? What is their reaction to we're going to do this thing when you tell them? Wow. Um, also a lot to unpack there. I think that that the first thing that comes to mind is barriers to, um, to implementing a project like this. And so the first thing that, that teachers tend to respond with is just a little bit of fear around um, such a dramatic shift um, because it really is taking the locus of control off of teachers um, and and schools and districts in a big way because instead of us defining success in really narrow ways, we're opening the door wide open for our scholars to define success. Um, and that loss of control is a little bit scary, um, but I believe strongly and I think the evidence is behind it that teachers are teachers for a very specific reason and that is that they care deeply about their scholars, they care deeply about students, and they want them to succeed. Um, and so that's generally the way the conversation shifts, is around uh, just that mindset shift that if we are choosing to pursue educational justice, and if we want all students to learn at high levels, and if we want to eliminate achievement gaps, and if we want to um, you know, just support our scholars in, in reaching mastery in a way that's authentic, um, we need to do whatever that best next step is. Um, and for a lot of um, our teachers, the answer clearly becomes portfolio assessments because a body of evidence enables students um, to have their existing knowledge and skills and dispositions validated, but then also explore their next level of mastery um, and that next level of proficiency in order to reach for higher levels and pursue authentic learning um, instead of instead of you know compliance-based learning. Um, and so the story with teachers is that portfolio assessments, uh, digital badges, they're a way to validate the existing sociocultural capital that students bring into the classroom, but then also build through experiences, not just in their classes, but outside in the community. And, and we have a formal internship program, but learning also happens outside of those formal experiences. Um, and so allowing students to look at a competency, at a learning target, and then figure out based on, you know, very well-supported metacognitive practices where they're going next and how to curate the evidence of their learning. It's just the best thing that we can do for them um, to support them where they are in a personalized way. And so that's generally the way conversations go with teachers. Um, and they, they often get quickly on board with it and then figure out that they have to enter sort of where they are. And so they take their existing practices and they negotiate how to get from where they are to what this is. Um, and then, you know, those pathways look very different. The same way yeah. pathways for students look different, pathways for teachers transitioning into a practice like this is also, uh, also needs to be very personalized. Yeah. Can you, let's pretend for a second that all of the policy, 1,100 policymakers are going to listen to this recording um, later and, and review some of what we're talking about. So let's come back to metacognition for a second. So, and, and um, can you just un unpack that term a little bit, help us realize why a system like this is important to metacognition, what is it? Uh, and how does this favor a different capacity and agency for students in their learning? Um, I think the simplest way to define metacognition is sort of thinking about your own thinking. So it's giving ownership, again, back to the students to recognize where they are and where they need to go, um, and then building systems of support around that. So enabling students to curate their own evidence allows them to identify or identify learning targets um, and then figure out pathways to get there in partnership with their teachers who are acting more like um, Gary Chapin from the Center for Collaborative Education says you shift more from a teacher to a very agile coach. Mm. Um, and so in that way, just like um, an athlete would figure out how to get better at their particular sport, 
with a little bit of coaching, but not with direct instruction necessarily, our students are able to do the same thing. And it really does, the word agency that you used is really um, the key to this, is that our students have agency. They're building a confidence that they don't build when they just sit down and read a prompt and take a test or fill out a worksheet. They're building, um, they're building dispositions that they're able to then transfer and apply to other contexts. Um, and so the practice of metacognition is really important in helping students recognize themselves um, and then being able to find ways to demonstrate what they know and can do. Um, and I think um, Adrian Rich, I believe, um, has this really beautiful quote um, where they say that when you, um, when you, there's a moment of psychic dis disequilibrium when you look into a mirror and you don't see yourself reflected. Um, and that is the way assessment is experienced for a lot of our students, is that you look at uh, a standardized test or you look at a worksheet or you look at you know, a really traditional um, uh, you know, 70 minute sit down and write what you know kind of test and you don't see yourself reflected in that. But portfolio assessment um, and digital micro-credentials allow students to define success in a way where they can see themselves when they look at the work that they produce. You guys are in, right? Yeah. Um, I think that you're, I'll have to look back, but I think that this is the first time Adrian Rich has come up in an, an interview on this show, which is, that's like a milestone. Um, so I want to come back to that. So, so Alec, the, the question I get a lot, right, and I think the question a lot of people in this room would have for us as we're talking about things like digital badging, What's the difference between credentials and digital badging? Is there a difference? Um, and it, should we be thinking about them as different things? Should we be, in, in your perspective, should we be thinking about them as one thing? What's your take on that? So, yeah, I, I like to think of digital badges and credentials under an umbrella of something we call learning recognition tools. And those learning recognition tools can be degrees, they can be majors, they can be grades, they can be separate certifications. The challenge with all of them is that they're linked to some identity of an institution. And that in some way confers the validity of that particular learning recognition tool. It's actually not necessarily linked to direct evidence that was used to earn that particular credential or degree or diploma. But also, uh, the way that many of those learning recognition tools have operated in the past is they are really large grains in terms of assessments. If you see, even, even at a small level at our school, if you see like an A in biochemistry one, what does that mean you know and can do? So for us, we wanted more nuanced and nimble learning recognition tools that can communicate and tell the story about the very rich skills that our scholars were building within internships and through classroom experiences. So that we could actually say, you can trust this kid with a micropipette or a spectrophotometer. You have a scholar that has demonstrated real elevator pitches to sell things, that has done uh, organized whole-scale meetings uh, in projects. So for us, that's, the, that's where we really valued the use of digital badges, is that they were smaller, more nimble, but also they were linked to evidence. And that story that they told about how they reached that success was within it. And it wasn't just for external audiences, it was also for our scholars themselves. We saw scholars who earned our spectrophotometry badge in grade 10 using those very digital badges in grade 11 to relearn how to use those skills with that tool. Because anytime you apply skills in a new context, there is new learning. And with that, going, being able to go back to the previous context of how they were recognized for success in using a spectrophotometer supported them with feeling confident in independently using that tool in new laboratory performances. And that's a, that was a really critical value that we had, is that we wanted these credentials to be owned by the students yeah. so that they can use them. I think one of the arguments that I've heard made in conversations here today is that we have to be careful that we're not 
selling young people on credentials or badges or whatever we want to call them that don't yield, um, that don't have currency, right? They don't yield a job or they don't yield the internship, what have you. But what you're describing is a is a could be seen as every one of these credentials is sort of bespoke in a way, right? Because the scholar is working with a mentor. Um, but if I'm hiring for an internship, correct me if I'm wrong, but I can literally click into your skill and see how you demonstrated exactly what it is I need to hire for, as opposed to having a PDF or a, or a logo or a bunch of letters, right? Uh, um, uh, an A-plus certification or, or any of these that, that come with very little evidence other than that there was a body that certified, um, I can actually drill into the actual skills. And how would you respond to folks who are concerned that there's not enough currency to these as learning recognition tools? So for the, the currency piece, that's something that we had to reconsider. So uh, when we started the project, we didn't have that direct link to currency that was really desired by our students, which was post-secondary currency, and then also economic opportunities that were directly accessible by earning these digital badges. So what we did is we formed a partnership with uh, Biocom, which is a local biotechnology trade association. Um, actually, they support all of California. And with them, they can go out to individual companies and then present the menu of options with those skills that are rep represented by digital badges, and then they can ping our scholars and invite them to those workforce opportunities. So that way we can build the currency through that direct connection between employer and our scholars. And it's through that practice that our aim was to build trust. And the same with our post-secondary partners as well. So we partnered with uh, the San Diego uh, Miramar Community College, and they have a local biotechnology center and biotechnology certification process. And the, they actually offer college credit for high school students who sit down and take a paper exam. It's credit by exam articulation. The challenge is, is that that paper exam is representing skills that are in the laboratory. So it's a paper exam asking how you use a micropet or the theory of gel electrophoresis, not actually doing gel electrophoresis. So they were concerned about the connection between those practices and then what, is, what those credentials were actually representing. So we built this process called competency-based articulation that we piloted throughout this year and or this past year and we're continuing to pilot um, as a way to build that, that currency piece. So there, there is a space where competencies are being used but the challenge is that the scale is not very achievable through the conventional practices. There was literally one faculty member from San Diego Miramar College driving to each high school in the county and proctoring paper exams. So that's, that's the shift. Wow. So we're shifting the role of being a proctor to being a mentor and auditor of the assessment practices that are happening within the school and also within industry. So what's their response, uh, Miramar? Now that they have a different system to work with, have they, what are they telling you about the efficiency of that system? Is it working for them? Is it not? Would they rather proctor a test? So a lot of it has to do with the, the institutional permissions that are required to move away from that credit by exam. Yeah. So that's why we conducted an evaluation. Uh, we worked with UCSD Create, and what they've done is they've done a full year um, efficacy and impact um, study looking at the digital badges versus the traditional credit by exam. So we looked at how students did on the test versus the badges, and that data and that report is coming soon. So we, we like the early data in terms of what it tells, but we had to conduct that study because we wanted to build trust with the whole institution because it could shift the whole institutions, the whole community college district's practices around articulation. I mean, it's huge. It's huge. It could be just uh, incredibly important for the entire field if, if what we can prove in this case, you know, whatever our end is, um, if we can prove that uh, when we're making a shift like this to uh, a... Um, a different, I'll use the word platform, because uh, in some ways, literally, we're, we're moving to 
a new platform for how we look at uh, student achievement in secondary and think about what their um, likelihood is for success in post-secondary and internships and other things, um, it has a, a potential ripple effect that is really important to this room and many rooms like it. Um, can we talk a little bit about the importance? Um, I'm, I'm curious from both of you guys about the importance of partnership, right? Because this is like a multi-tiered, there are so many um, kind of tiers of control here, right? You have what's happening at the school level, but then you have what's happening for internship partners. You have Biocom, which is a sort of intermediary, um, how, how do a trade organization? A trade association. Um, you have a trade association involved. You have community colleges. Presumably, you, you eventually have uh, state schools uh, in the area that, that also want to get involved and talk to Miramar. Um, tell me about just the, the process of managing all of that partnership and um, where do you feel like if if um, if that journey was like a full candyland board how like how far are you on your way to, to candyland like or you feel like you're halfway uh, an eighth of the way <laughs> candyland all right let's do this. Yes, sure. Yes, there are definitely shoots. <laughs> yeah, so we, we focused on one sector. We didn't go crazy. We just focused on the biotechnology sector. And we leveraged an advantage that is in our state where we have sector navigators for these sectors of employment that are critical in our state. And one of those sectors is biotechnology. So there are a string of community colleges across the state of California that offer similar certification pathways. So the digital badges that we've tuned through our assessment practices uh, with faculty, because the faculty co-built these assessments and the credentials with our high school teachers and with industry perspectives as well. Uh, and as soon as we've, we complete our efficacy study, um, we have that scale across the entire state. So build trust locally, and then once you're able to tell the story about what it's shifted for the practice of our post-secondary partners, and then the practice of students, impacting students, the work by teachers, the impact level is really important to tell that story. Um, that makes it a lot easier to look at other sectors that also have a need for a similar process for recognizing learning and supporting student agency, um, particularly with that theory of identity piece that, that Carissa was talking about. Um, so we're actually moving in those, those other spaces right now because there's a need across our state to support uh, how we identify uh, career and technical education pathway completers in California. And we need some way to connect the data from the assessments to our state data systems that connect to our school dashboards. That's part of our accountability system. So there's a real need for these more nimble credentials that also can then support students with transitioning from secondary to post-secondary. So it was really smart, I think, in some ways for us to focus on the community college level yeah. because they're focused on these middle skill careers and they have these network, they have a big network of schools where they're all working on similar certification pathways and they have to, of course, connect to uh, four-year universities as well. Um, that was a really, really useful starting point for us. Yeah. Um, and that's what I would advise. Otherwise, you're going to go down shoots if you start saying yes to every C uh, career and technical education educator that's like, oh, that's a great idea. Let's do that. <laughs> start with one sector, work on the process, tune it. And that's what we've been doing. And particularly with one school, one set of teachers. And then we, we've just spread to uh, 10 more schools throughout our county. And test there, look at how it works in different school contexts before we move so on. Yeah. Hmm. Ten more high schools or ten more community colleges? Ten more high schools. So we did our pilot this past year at uh, four different school districts, um, ten schools, ten teachers, and they were already uh, doing credit by exam articulation with San Diego Miramar College, so they had useful data that we could then connect to to look at how kids did with our badges versus the traditional test that the kids were going to take. 
So we'll have that report coming out really soon. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Carissa, I want to come back to you and now talk about the identity piece, right? So um, there, I think that there are a lot of folks who are following the conversation about alternative credentialing and some of the projects like Competency X. I, I might even argue that there's not really projects like Competency X exactly. There are other projects that are um, running sort of parallel experiments to figure out what this all means. But you bring identity into it, which I think um, is one of the reasons people are following it closely. Um, you talked about identity and you talked about a sort of a social justice orientation to what we do as educators. And I just want to give you a moment to talk about why is this a catalyst for those practices and those ideas um, unique from a grade book and a letter grade and, um, you know, your traditional high school diploma? I think Alec mentioned a little bit earlier about the way that these uh, digital badges um, can serve as sort of backpacks for a collection of of, of data. There's, you know, a lot of metadata behind the badge that tells a bigger story. Ella keeps using that phrase, telling a story, you know, a student's narrative. Um, and storytelling is an incredibly powerful tool for um, recognizing and developing agency and building identity and being able to have that opportunity in a way that's validated um, then validates that story, right? And so, and so validating a student's story is then validating their identity, which allows them to um, build s- sort of social-emotional skills at the same time. Um, when they're able to say, I, I recognize that I did this well, and I'm going to submit this evidence, and then a professional, a mentor, a teacher, um, you know, community college professor looks at that evidence and that story that they're telling about themselves and says, you know, you're right, you did do this, you 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 were successful, and they validate that. Um, it just gives students an experience of, um, of, I mean, I keep using the word validate, but it's just so important because it gives students that experience of having who they are validated because they're telling their story. It's very personal. Um, and you know, all of the learning sciences are, support the idea that social-emotional learning is just it's inextricably linked with academics, um, with academic performance. We can't continue to expect students to excel in academics without recognizing their humanity. Um, and, so, and so building storytelling in a way, in, into assessment in a way that um, opens opportunities for them is really allowing their story, their personality, who they are, to open opportunities for them. And that's something that, tradi- that you know, traditional schooling has never done in the past. Um, traditional schools reduce students to letters and numbers. And a storytelling assessment project like ePortfolios and these digital badges um, completely turns that on its head. And it, and it provides um, students an opportunity for their identity to, to um, unlock opportunities for who they are um, and not just what we define them as at the end with, you know, a GPA. So if I'm, uh, if I'm um, a, a young man who would, would be potentially the first to college in my family, um, I live in the Middle Valley or I live in uh, San Diego County, my parents don't speak science. My community doesn't speak science. I don't have an uncle who's a biologist. And I go to school and I learn how to use a micro pipette. And then suddenly a mentor looks at the evidence of, of me working in the lab as being valuable to an internship or valuable to um, you know, a two-year degree or whatever it's going to do. Part of your hypothesis is that the effect on identity and the effect on self-efficacy when we give them a sort of say and agency in the assessment process changes. Right. And I, I, I actually want to let Alec tell the story because he loves it so much, um, but we actually have had a lot of scholars who, through the process of building badges and, and earning them in their internships, have come to recognize a set of skills and competencies that they had that they didn't know they had before until they were given an opportunity to tell that story. There have been several scholars who 
have walked into an internship not knowing what kind of work they were going to do, if it was going to be meaningful, who were then able to use that, that badge and that storytelling to, to change the course of their experience. Um, and we mentioned earlier, we were talking about um, one of our scholars who was interning at a biotechnology company and she walked in and she didn't see herself, right? Yeah, and that was that was something that really impacted us as educators and supporting and mentoring these kids is that they were going into internships where no one else in that field looked like them or had that story. And for them to be validated for the work that they were doing in that internship and then begin to see that this is actually a career space that I can get into. I didn't even know this thing existed. Bioinformatics is what the scholar that I think we're talking about is pursuing and didn't even recognize it as a field until she had her internship experience. So I think that's, I think that's critical because uh, going back to your, your, your explanation about identity is that our identity is shaped by a series of performances that we have. And the more varied those contexts are, the more impactful it is to our scholars seeing that the work that they're doing is actually aligned to what's being expected in industry or with the field that they're most interested in. So connecting scholars at an interest level with their skills to those opportunities is really important. Um, it's really interesting when you move away from traditional summative assessments and then you ask kids to tell a story through performances by actually having those accountable standards for how you run your gel or how you prepare a solution. It opens up the eyes of scholars that traditionally have not been successful in school because they're being asked to do something so dramatically different than success is being defined in a, such a dramatically different way. So we're going to uh, excel in ed, I hope, is going to uh, retweet this recording when it exists. If you had, you could wave a wand and have everybody listen to one or two suggestions related to what lawmakers, policy folks could do to sort of get out of the way or support or uh, bolster projects like this wherever local is for them. What would you uh, ask of them? Uh, I think for me at the state level, I would hope that lawmakers would look for ways to incorporate policies to expand the definition of success, especially for the secondary space. You go onto the California Department of Ed website and you type in high school graduation requirements and there's a list, four years of English, one year of history, two years of science, um, and that not only silos disciplines in an era where they really ought to be interdisciplinary, but it also reduces all of learning and college and career preparedness to a series of classes, you know, one year, two year, it's based on time and it's not based on learning. Learning um, is nonlinear um, and giving um, students an opportunity to pursue nonlinear pathways um, to mastery is important. So I know a lot of um, state educational agencies across the country are pursuing um, the incorporation of competency-based education language into their existing ed code, and I think that's something I would like to see more of across the country. Um, but also, I think thinking more about what Alex said earlier um, really got me thinking about redesigning the way our states choose to um, provide accountability measures and demonstrate, um, you know, the uh, success of schools. It, the school dashboard makes school districts choose certain assessment measures, right? We were trying to move that little needle and get into the blue, and so we teach to standardize tests, and that doesn't, it doesn't um, teach learning, it just teaches compliance. And so I think rethinking assessment and accountability measures um, at the policy level, at the state level, would have a trickle-down effect into the classroom where people are freed to then pursue authentic learning and teaching experiences. Beautiful. For me, just everything you said, <laughs> I would also add that it has been very powerful to partner with post-secondary. And I think that that's, I think that we're in sort of a novice state of how to do that beyond just entrance requirements and seek ways of creative advising, I think is the way I would put it, because our scholars are discovering who they are and how do we take those stories that are being captured through those digital badges mm -hmm. to help support their journey and continue on that journey. Right. So that way their path 
can, can be jagged and they can meet additional mm -hmm. mentors and things like that. That's been something we've talked a lot about. So how do we partner tighter with post-secondary? So that's Great. a big question for us. Um, I want to give an opportunity. If you guys have any questions for um, these guys about the model, I, I have a really important one. If, if we are in... Um, oh, sorry. Uh, sorry, Mary Alber. I'm with Education Innovation Collaborative with Nevada. I'm focused on Nevada right now, but we're designing a learning lab that would demonstrate the state of the art in this area. And we're wondering if there's a possible... Well, I'd love to talk more about the partnering possibilities to trial what you're doing in, in our system. And in terms of sort of building that at the state level, at what stage do you think the state can actually shift over to competency-based? Do we have to build up all of the biotech plus all the other pathways first, and then the state converts to competency? Or can we do, do you see a pathway that's partial introduction? I, that's, that's, a, that's a really good question because it's not an on or off switch, or at least the way that we see it, that you have to go all in or not in. Um, there's certainly a mindset that comes from being competency-based. In fact, I would argue that Del Lago is moving closer and closer to our vision of personalized learning through our efforts around assessment practices and really defining what competencies mean right. and mean about our assessment practices. So uh, Del Lago started with... Uh, time being the variable and learning being the constant. And it's starting with those core principles that have allowed us to innovate with our practices. So in terms of state policy to support us, not restricting us by state time requirements mm -hmm. is probably the biggest bang for our buck. Right. And they did agree to do that? That is... Not here. Not, 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 no, not other so, not across have, our state, but yeah, other, other states, states have. have their entire, other entire states have gone um, to a system where seat time is not the standard for, you know, getting those, those state, the state funding and all of that. Um, we still have that here, um, but it's a possibility to get rid of it because other states are doing it. And then really thinking about how to build trust within your local education associations, um, particularly with boards of education, right. because there's a huge communications need and building trust around the shift in these practices. Uh, Delago was, it's very interesting that mm. we were able to build the trust that we right. were with our board and engage in the practices that we engage in. So that's something that we need to think in a different way about how we, how we communicate with our communities and better serve our communities through competency-based education. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned you partner with a local pharma industry. How is that with the teachers working with the business partners? How is that like, the, getting the parents, if, say they go on site for a job shadow or the internship? What does that communication process look like? And how is it, I guess, kind of even more for the teachers, like the teachers working with businesses? Because I think that's one piece within our educational design that's always kind of a barrier with teachers working with businesses. And it sounds like you've alleviated that, you've mastered it. Share. That was, that was the original idea was that uh, we would actually have uh, scholars, teachers, and our industry partners all in the same room co-creating assessments. Right. And the debates that we had were awesome. We had a <laughs> scholar yelling at an industry professional saying, that's not how you do lab reports, and then busting out her <laughs> high school laboratory report and saying, this is how you do laboratory reports. And then the industry professional saying, no, I'm not going to hire you if you give me this. This is the reason why, why, why. And it showed this disconnect we had between the standards, the interpretation of the standards, and then the assessment practices within school, and then what we developed as a mindset on the part of our scholars about what success as a scientist looks like, it was really far from what success as a scientist is within the industry. So getting everyone in the same room and really calling out what success looks like, and then how do you check for success? What are those mm -hmm. indicators for success? Uh, that was really, really impactful. But that has to be done regularly because there's a drift to assessing the way you've always assessed right. and valuing the practices you experienced and you grew up with and you had success with. 
So having that regular industry connection, um, and, and that for us, that was our advisory group uh, for uh, Competency X when we got started. I know you mentioned um, the mentors that you work with. I was just curious who they were, if they're from the pro-secondary level, if they're from industry, and what impact that's had on your scholars. Right, so our internship program, um, Gosh, there's a lot to it. Um, but we have, um, we started with the industry advisory board, but what we did from there was we um, started finding connections in our local community um, to just businesses, local businesses, so across several different industries. Our internship program is not strictly biotechnology the way that the Competency X project started. Our internship program goes across every industry in our county, in San Diego County. Um, we have a uh, internship coordinator, that's her title, right? Mm -hmm. Internship coordinator, Karen Parker, who um, actually helps establish connections in the community um, to, to business partners who are willing to host an intern. Um, and so the impact that that has on our students um, varies, right? Um, just the same way uh, real work experience varies in quality, so, so do internships. And so um, our scholars are often um, often come to a realization about the kinds of careers and futures that they want to have based on their internship program. Uh, they get to work closely with their mentors to um, come up with a project and figure out how to, um, how to do that work from the standpoint of a professional in that industry. So they're learning industry knowledge and skills, they're practicing growth mindset, they're learning professional communication, um, all of these you know, sort of soft skills that aren't so soft after all. Um, and they, they then use that learning back in the classroom and then in subsequent experiences to gain employment um, and college and career you know, opportunities. So the impact of our mentors has been pretty um, significant in that our scholars are really beginning to understand um, the impact of experiences at the secondary level on their real future, not just the future that is in this little tiny bubble, um, but you know, thinking far into the future and figuring out what they really enjoy, what they're really passionate about, and what they're really good at. And that also goes back to kind of the core of what began this project, which is how do you validate nerdy delight? <laughs> it comes from a relationship with a mentor. Right. And that's something that was a shift for us as teachers to move into that mentor role when students were doing rich performance tasks mm. in our classrooms and then also into the community. So that's that's a really, really huge mindset shift for us as teachers. Carissa and Alec, huge thanks. I feel like I could sit here all night, but they're going to turn the lights off eventually. Um, I'm going to have you guys back so we can keep talking about what's happening at Del Lago. And, and um, we need to talk about some of the data that's coming out, the, the report. And um, I think everybody's really excited to hear more about that. Thank you for joining us at Excel and Ed. I think uh, this is going to be a great addition uh, for them to share around to this conference network. And, and um, I learn a lot every time I talk to you. Uh, I'm so psyched about what's happening through Del Lago Academy. And um, I appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy. A guest in Episode Zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser. A learner like you and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.